Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost? I'm your host Annette. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 70. Stephen. Yes? Have you ever been to Australia? I have not. You've been over that Oh, you've been to New Zealand. Fuzzy Fruitland, yeah. Do you know, I only recently found out, probably from this episode, I didn't realise how big Australia was. It, it is humongous. <laughs> no, nobody saw the emphasis you put on that, but I get it. Okay. We crack on? Crack on. I am a bit of a weirdo. Of course, if you've been with us since the beginning of the podcast, this is not news. I have to do things at certain times, and if I miss that time slot, I have to wait for the next hour. That's sort of weird and wonderful. I have wanted to cover the Somerton Man for ages, but worried about it being a little too true crime for a paranormal podcast, except it's not. For 70 years, it's been Australia's greatest crime mystery. And I felt I had to wait for a big episode, but I covered my childhood nightmare on episode 50, and now that we're down to one episode a week, I just didn't want to wait for episode 100. So here we are. Sit back and get comfy, because this mystery is as odd as my husband's socks. We begin our story on Somerton Beach at 6am on December 1st, 1948, with the arrival of Australian police following a call about the body of a middle-aged man lying in the sand halfway propped up against the seawall. The grisly discovery was made by two trainee jockeys out horseback riding on the beach. They approached the man to see if he was okay or in need of any assistance, but quickly made the call to authorities when it was quite evident that the man was indeed dead. Upon finding him, the police reported he was in his early 40s, smartly dressed in a clean suit, smart tie and a polished pair of nice shoes. In his pocket was a bus ticket, which had been purchased the day before, indicating that he had not been in Somerton any earlier than that previous afternoon. Also on his person, they found an unused second-class railway ticket to a nearby suburb named Henley Beach, an aluminium comb, a half-empty pack of chewing gum, a box of matches, and strangest of all, a pack of Army Club brand cigarettes, which actually contained cigarettes from a different brand called Kensitus. After speaking with residents in the area, it was revealed that the man had been seen sitting in the same spot the night before, but they all just assumed he was either drunk or sleeping and left him alone. One couple claimed to have seen the man around 7pm while out for a stroll. They said at one point, the man extended his arm out before letting it fall limp again and afterwards he remained perfectly still despite many mosquitoes buzzing around his face. Another couple saw him later that evening and while they thought it was strange that a man was dressed in a suit at the beach, they also felt no need to go in closer to investigate. There were no signs of violence, so investigators initially concluded that the man became ill, sat down on the beach and propped himself up against the wall to rest, either passed out or fell asleep and then just died during the night. It was tragic of course, and a true example of how easily we can walk past people who might be in distress or in need, but we can walk on by as if we are numb to it or in some cases too afraid to help. But the situation had hardly any indicators of being one of the most mysterious incidents in Australian history. That was until the autopsy was done, and things started to get really weird. When he began, 
Pathologist James Barclay Bennett concluded that the mysterious stranger died no earlier than 2am that morning, which sadly means that he was still alive when everyone said they saw him the previous night, although he had been clearly incapacitated somehow. The doctor agreed that the dead man was somewhere between 40 and 45 years old and that there were no signs of violence on the body. In fact, he had been in great physical shape. His body was fit and his heart was healthy, even though it was heart failure which had actually killed him. To look at, you would never have matched his cause of death to his body, which sounds like a weird board game for pathologists in training, but I digress. So the pathologist began to suspect that foul play might have been involved. He looked for signs of poisoning and found them. His pupils were small and unusual. His spleen was around three times the normal size and his liver, kidneys and stomach were all filled with blood. Aside from the physical signs on his organs, being poisoned would also have explained the man's behaviour from the previous night, where he had seemingly been alive yet unable to move or communicate with anyone apart from the single arm spasm. Whether the man took poison willingly or not was still inconclusive, but it was beginning to look like a clear case of poisoning. But to be sure, the pathologist sent samples to a chemistry lab to check for toxins, which they did and found nothing. No alkaloids, cyanides, phenols or barbiturates, not a trace of any of them. Later during the investigation, a distinguished pharmacologist named Cedric Stanton Hicks suggested that a very potent poison was likely used which decomposed after his death and left no trace. He suggested strophanthin or digitalis, although whether he was right or not became impossible to prove. In the end, even though the pathologist was convinced that the death could not have been natural, he could not conclude the cause of death. Meanwhile, the police were trying to identify the body the media had taken to calling the Somerton Man, but they had very little to go on, as there was no wallet with the body. In fact, there was no form of identification at all. The labels on all of his clothing had even been removed. They found no dental records, his fingerprints were not found in any Australian database, and even when they sought assistance through international help in Britain and the United States, they yielded no results. A photograph of the man circulated throughout the country, but even though dozens of people came to visit his body, no one recognised him. A few unusual physical traits discovered during the autopsy were the only pointers that could possibly lead to identification. The Somerton man had very soft and smooth hands, showing no sign of manual labour, but he had extremely well-developed calf muscles, the most prominent the pathologist had ever seen. His toes were also wedge-shaped, indicating that he wore pointed shoes with high heels. These facts together suggested that maybe the Somerton man had been a ballet dancer or a long-distance runner. By the start of 1949, police had exhausted all of their leads, and the Somerton man was still a John Doe. Some argued that his death had been a suicide, but then why would someone have concocted such a complex plan to take their own life? More to the point, how would they do it? Firstly, one would need to acquire a potent poison, because they aren't just sold in the supermarkets, but, you know, can be obtained. But then you have to ensure it couldn't be traced back to you. Secondly, one would need to erase every single teeny tiny bit of evidence of them ever having lived on the planet. Fingerprints and dental records all gone. 
even erasing any photographic evidence of your existence so no one could come forward to identify you. And as difficult as that would be today with the internet, it wouldn't be impossible in the 50s as long as you lived your life out of the spotlight. During the month of January, authorities widened their search to include examining all discarded or lost luggage found in Adelaide hotels and railway stations, hoping that one of them might belong to their victim. It seemed like an act of desperation, but it did yield some results. On January 14th, staff from the Adelaide railway station came forward with a suitcase that had been sitting in their cloakroom since the morning of November 30th. The timing lined up nicely, as the prior evidence found on the Somerton man's person suggested that that was the day he arrived in Adelaide. But sadly, there was nothing conclusive to connect the suitcase to the Somerton man. Even so, the police took what they could get. The suitcase contained pretty much what you would expect a travelling man to have packed in his suitcase. A few items of clothing, shaving kit, toothbrush, toothpaste, shoe polish, a table knife, a pair of scissors, an assortment of pencils, some handkerchiefs and a lighter. The only items they considered unusual in the suitcase, although I would consider a table knife to be unusual, were a stenciling brush typically used for stenciling cargo on merchant ships and a sewing kit. Not because he was a man in his late 40s and what would he need with a sewing kit, but because it contained a Barber brand orange wax thread that wasn't available in Australia at the time. Another small clue was the stitchwork on a coat found in the suitcase, which was unknown in Australia but commonly used in America. These signs pointed to the possibility that the Somerton man may have worked as a sailor or may have travelled to the United States at one point. As with all of the clothing on his person, all labels and other identifying markers had been painstakingly removed, except for three tags with the name T. Keen on them. This lead proved to another dead end though, as nobody was missing by that name. The police concluded that whoever removed all the other labels left the ones with T. Keen on them because they knew it would lead nowhere. The case would come to a near standstill for about six months as police were stumped until June of 1949 when a new clue changed the trajectory of the investigation from unsolved murder to spy thriller territory. A new pathology professor, Sir John Burton Cleland, was brought in to lend his expertise in the hopes that he might see something, anything, that everyone else had missed. He reached a couple of determinations concerning the proof that had been previously examined. For example, we mentioned that the Somerton man wore swanky-looking nice shoes, but the truth is that they were not simply nice, they were spotless and did not look like the shoes of a man who'd walked on the beach. Likewise, there was no vomit on his clothes or around where the victim was found, which is unusual seeing as the victim was likely poisoned. This made Cleland suspect that the man had been poisoned elsewhere and then dumped on the beach incapacitated but still alive. Though Cleland also felt pretty confident that the Somerton man died from poison, he too admitted defeat when it came to establishing the actual cause of death. After he was finished with his investigation, it was time to actually bury the victim as the body had started to decompose. Even so, authorities knew that they might be getting rid of one of their key pieces of evidence. So they had the body embalmed first and had plaster casts made of his head and torso. He was also buried under concrete and dry ground to make it easier to exhume him if and when they needed to. A second and more thorough exam of the victim's clothing yielded a new strange and unique piece of evidence. 
Inside a pocket of his trousers was a smaller fob pocket for a watch and inside that pocket was a rolled up piece of paper with two words printed on it. Taman should. Translated from Persian, this means finished or ended, and the mystery itself often became known as the Taman Shud case, as well as the Somerton Man case. The words were written in such a distinctive script that a local police reporter with the Adelaide Advertiser named Frank Kennedy actually recognised where they came from. A book of 12th century Persian poems called The Rubaiyat of Amar Khayyam, dubbed the Astronomer Poet of Persia. Now, this might seem incredibly vague, but the poems of Omar Khayyam were well known and popular in the English-speaking world at the time, following the 1859 translation by English writer Edward Fitzgerald. This new evidence made some investigators circle back to the suicide theory again. Taman Shud were the last words in the poetry book, and the poem itself was about living life to the fullest and having no regrets when it was time to die. The symbolism could obviously have suggested a person taking their own life, but of course, it also could have been staged by someone attempting to make it look like a suicide. But despite this new evidence, the police were still no closer to uncovering the truth. Any symbolism behind the words Tomon should aside, police turned their interest to the actual book the words came from. They started searching through bookshops and libraries in Adelaide and nearby towns but had no luck. By then, they'd put out an appeal to the public with the words and the descriptive script used in a hope that someone would recognise it, and they did, on July 22nd, 1949. A man who identified under the pseudonym Ronald Francis came forward with a copy of the Rubaiyat from his brother-in-law's glove compartment. When asked about it, his brother-in-law stated that he found the book on the back seat of his car. He thought someone had thrown it in the open window and this supposedly happened on November 30th while the car was parked one block away from Somerton Beach. Location, dates and times all lined up that this was the book the scrap of paper had come from and then the police lined up the torn piece to the page from the book and they matched up perfectly. Now, you would be forgiven for thinking that this blew the case wide open but it did little to help solve the mystery. In fact, it made it even more bizarre. For starters, this was a genuine first edition of the English translation from 1859. It was expensive and very rare. If it had indeed belonged to the Somerton man, it is likely that the book was the most valuable possession he owned, so why would he casually discard it in a random car that he walked past? If he didn't own it, but took it for the sole purpose of removing those words to perhaps give his death some kind of symbolic meaning, why go to the effort of obtaining such a rare copy? You would also think if someone sold a first edition that they would remember and come forward but no such luck. If it was stolen, it wasn't reported, and if it was borrowed, again, no one came forward to the authorities. Another possibility was that the copy did not belong to the Somerton man, and that it belonged to his killer and it was them who put the torn up piece of paper in his trouser pocket, and who also threw the book in the back of Ronald Francis's brother-in-law's car. But the torn piece from the book was not the only clue. More clues were found inside the book. One of the clues was a phone number penciled on the back cover. The other clue was the faint indentations left behind, as if the book had been used to lean on while writing on another page. 
There were five lines of seemingly random letters, of which one line had been crossed out. Immediately, investigators went straight to the juicy conclusion that it was a secret code. Which I suppose would explain why it had to be this rare 1859 version of the book. The translations between different editions varied, so the code might not have worked on any other edition. But this theory can only remain speculation, because to this day the code has not been cracked. So what about the other leads? During the investigation, police tracked the phone number down to a house of a young woman who lived very near Somerton Beach. Her name was kept private, so she was always referred to by the nickname of Justin or the pseudonym Teresa Johnson. It was only in recent years that her true name was revealed with her family's permission. Her name was Jessica Thompson, a 27-year-old nurse who was married to a man named Prosper Thompson. She agreed to cooperate on the condition that her name was kept out of the investigation. She wasn't able to see the Somerton man's body as he had already been buried, but she was able to see the plaster casts of his head. But investigators were perplexed by her reaction. They noted that she was completely taken aback and appeared as if she was about to faint. But given that she had been a nurse during the war, they expected that she had surely seen far worse than the plaster cast of a dead body. So obviously, you can guess the investigators believed her reaction was caused by potentially having a close connection with the deceased. But despite this reaction causing the investigators to think that they could maybe move forward with this case... Mrs. Thompson denied knowing who he was, and as for the book, she admitted that she once owned a copy, but she had given it to a soldier named Alfred Boxall in Sydney during the war. She never disclosed the nature of their relationship, although investigators obviously suspected a love affair. Police hoped that this would finally bring the case to a close, and that it was an unfortunate but not unheard of case of Boxall being a jilted lover who decided to take his own life after visiting the woman he loved one last time. However, this theory was thrown out when it was soon discovered that Alfred Boxall was, in fact, alive and well and working as a bus maintenance officer in Randwick. As it turned out, he still had his copy of the book completed with the words Tam and Shud, and it wasn't the 1859 edition anyway. The dead end on the Boxall theory pretty much extinguished the last glimmer of hope that investigators had of solving this case. They had followed up on all the leads and each and every time they were left more confused and uncertain than before. But as with all things, even today, the lack of concrete facts in the case led to rumours and outlandish theories to fill the void. But the one that still has a lot of support even today is that the Somerton man had been a spy. It would explain most of the unusual aspects of this case to say the least. The elaborate death, the untraceable poison, the book and in particular the code. Some even postulate that even Jessica Thompson had also been a spy. And I would jump on the usual, oh yeah, she was a pretty woman so she must have been up to something, bandwagon. But among those who believed she was a spy was her own daughter Kate. In a later interview, Kate recalled her mother once saying that she knew who the Somerton man actually was, but would not go into detail. On another occasion, Jessica admitted to being fluent in Russian, although again she would not say when she learned it. Her family members also think that it was possible Jessica was having an affair with the Somerton man, even going so far as saying that her son Robin, who was born a year before the Somerton man died, was actually his son. Jessica Thompson passed away in 2007, so if she did know more about the Somerton man case, she took those secrets to the grave with her. 
Luckily today, with modern technology and forensics, new leads could be found. There was an Adelaide woman who believed that she had identified the Somerton man as a British sailor H.C. Reynolds. She was searching among her father's old possessions and found an ID card of a man identified as Reynolds, who served in World War I and bore a striking resemblance to the Somerton man. She took the photograph to a biological anthropologist who compared the image to photos of the Somerton man. It was concluded that the ear shape was very similar. FYI, ears are as unique as fingerprints. And a mole was found which was in the same location on both men. Not everyone agreed with this identification though for several reasons, but mostly because the real H.C. Reynolds died in 1953. The most recent update on this case though has been the breakthrough made by Professor Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide. He has been researching the Somerton man for over a decade. Abbott and his team had two angles. One was cracking the code and the other was using DNA to identify the body. Now the first wasn't going swimmingly, despite his team eliminating numerous types of ciphers, but the most likely scenario is that the code needs the original 1859 poetry book to work. And unfortunately this seems to have been forgotten, probably in the back of some rich aristocrat's home library, and they have been unable to secure another copy. The DNA angle was showing more promise. For years, Abbott was unsuccessful in his efforts to convince the South Australian government to exhume the body of the Somerton man because he couldn't prove a substantial and legitimate reason for it. But Abbott was able to extract enough DNA from the Somerton man's hairs and through that was able to find a distant cousin that was still alive. They expanded the family tree out to 4,000 people searching through the paternal and maternal sides. Along that line, they found six siblings, but only five death certificates. He was born Carl Webb, but went by Charles in 1905. He was an engineer and an instrument maker. In 1947, he falls off the radar after separating from his wife. So not a spy, not the second half of a love affair. And T. Kane, the only name on any of his clothing, was married to the Somerton man's sister. I feel like it's still unresolved. <laughs> it's only in the last seven months there's been any updates on it. I've wanted to do this since the start of the podcast, but I wanted to get a couple of episodes yeah. in and you know get a bit of practice before I really delved into because there's so much in it. And I'm one, I apologise if I keep referring to him as the Somerton man. And others just refer to him as Somerton Man. So I'm sorry if I annoyed you or you cringed every time I said that. But I really wanted to get a couple of episodes in under my belt before I did it. And then before I knew it, here we were. And I was like, um, they've already solved it, but I still want to cover the case. Oh, so that is the end. They think so. Now, your man was very specific and he said, we're scientists. We never give 100%. We always say we are 99.99% sure. Yeah, because there's always that one teeny tiny bit that you're kind of like, there's there's no real way that they can prove that it's him because they didn't take any DNA samples back then. Yeah, other than his hair, but it was I think it, now I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but I think it's mitochondrial DNA. Yes, it is the exact same way that they caught the Golden State Killer. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's a lot of you know quabs about people's privacy yeah. and stuff like that. Um. But the way I see it is, and this is when you walked into the room today and I was finishing off the last little bit of an edit, I was like, um, okay, so just 
don't kill anyone and you won't have any issues and you walked in and you were like what the hell are you talking about but basically they're saying that people are you know 23 and me um or all that genealogy yeah. stuff where you send in a cheek swab and then they do your ancestry tree and yeah. um people who have submitted their own details to try and learn about their own family tree that's all obtainable by the courts and by the police if they need it for an investigation mm-hmm. so that's basically how they found him because someone along his line had done a genealogy done a ge- I, th- I thought it was brilliant um but I remember the first time I ever listened to that, I was like, God, that that, that kind of falls over the true crime and the bizarre. So mm. it's not paranormal, but it was just a really bizarre case that I thought, isn't it funny when a story gets legs and it just runs and immediately you go from, oh my God, this poor man is found on the side of the beach. We all completely ignored him. He must have been a spy. Like, how does it get there? That's just the human brain. Don't it know really it is. It really, really is. Um, I know that was long. <laughs> <laughs> but I I should have given you at least a couple of good characters. Well, I've got one. Okay. Uh, and this is probably a non-speaking role. Okay. Because he's the, dead. Because the part <laughs> the part of the suburban man. But um, Scoot McNary, who plays Bill McNew in a show called Godless that I've been watching recently. I don't know any of those three things that you just said. It's very strange that you're watching something that I don't know who someone is. I'll show you a picture of Scoot. Yes. And he plays a hapless, once once brilliant hotshot shooter guy that was an amazing sheriff that saved loads of lives but now is losing his eyesight and oh is, no. is... But he got glasses. Um, <laughs> so now his shot's better and he's good looking that reminded me of an old song that we we used to sing in scouts that I I, I learned in the pub and it, it started like my uncle died ah, oh my money. I've yeah. seen those TikToks like, he was losing his eyesight oh, but he found his glasses yay anyway um, but yeah I think he'd be a great character in it because he's all like a sullen and stuff and, and, he does, and it's, a, it's an easy five books like you just lie there and don't speak yeah have but- a nap it's funny though because I was I've I will include the links that I used for my research. I relied heavily on Biographics YouTube video, um, just because I don't know if it's his accent or if it's just the way he presents his show. He's very factual. He's very easy to listen to, and a story like this, especially murders or mysteries or something that's a bit bizarre or a story like this, like I said, that grew legs, it's very hard for somebody to just, just give me the facts, just give me the, the bare bones of information and then I can kind of Irish it up as we said the last week. Um, but I, I relied heavily on him and then I included some of the news reports that I watched um, that were the more recent uh, developments on the case uh, because I think it's fascinating because now like his his distant distant cousin is now sitting there going I, ca- I cannot believe I am alive to witness this happening or, or whatever about witnessing it but to help solve this case mm-hmm. so I really hope it, it is um, the well, conclusion I think they're going to stop looking now at this point I'd say they probably will Um the only reason that they wouldn't is if someone came up and said actually do you know what that's not what happened because we saw him on such and such a date and it turns out it wasn't the guy that we thought it yeah. was because like I said he, he was a strange somebody finds from... a letter in their deceased granddad's cupboard and is like I'm the killer because that's 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 that would be an amazing story well that would be a really good story they, they might still be a killer they, they found 
the person, but they didn't find the car. The yeah, that's just that's the bit that annoys me. That's why yeah. I kind of wanted to cover this because it's still very unfinished for me. Yeah. Yes, they know who he is, but finding out who the victim is, and that's why I do agree with the ancestry information being available because, and it's not oh, if I kill someone, I don't want to make it easy to get caught. I don't understand how serial killer brains work that's beyond but my thing is if i go missing i want to make it as easy as possible for people to be able to identify who i am to let my next of kin know Mm -hmm. um and it's the same reason that i podcasts are easier for me to listen to when it comes to true crime but watching documentaries is harder for me when there's cctv the cctv i'm just kind of like there she is she's right there Mm -hmm. she's right there how did nobody see this and that's why cctv kind of messes with my brain a little bit but i want to be seen i want to be heard i want to be i want to be easy to find basically Mm -hmm. so that at least if something ever happened to me you would have some sort of closure because that's that's kind of what it feels like because like I don't know what happened with his wife I know he had separated from her but were they were they ever going to get back together does she think that he left and you know is now married and shacked up with another woman like it's just it's mad now I did (laughs) hear one or two things come up about him being quite fond of the horsies so that code that they've spent the last 70 years trying to decipher, I have a very strange feeling that's like letters in correspondence with like different tracks and stuff like that. Because yeah. I used to work in a bookies and the amount of things that people used to write that would be completely unrecognizable to the to the, someone who didn't work in a yeah. bookies. And then to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's trap four in Laytown Park. Like mm. that might have been a virtual race. I don't remember. You're going to talk up and I'm sure lay down. down. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did fall down a rabbit hole. I won't go into it now because it's... um Tomorrow. <laughs> it's very late. And I know that's not your fault. It's our fault for recording so late. But it's so yummy.com poison food history. I'm going to link it. It's so, it's so weird, the amount of people who have managed to somehow discreetly slip poison into other people's foods. Because I went... On a, I went on a deep dive in the rabbit hole and I was like yeah but how like if he was poisoned if the Somerton man was poisoned wouldn't he know and then I found out that cyanide is tasteless and odourless and that freaked mm. me out did you ever see the film The Young Poisoner's Handbook sorry it might not be cyanide because isn't one of them doesn't one of them smell like almonds only certain people can smell it I believe oh, okay, if, okay, I, okay. if I remember my CSI correctly <laughs> sorry the handbook the Young Poisoner's Handbook. Okay. It's about a man who poisons people. Stop. And he's all like just putting stuff in their tea. No. And he, he wanted to like individually poison somebody. Uh-huh. So uh, he'd take it. You know the way everybody has their tea and everybody drinks their tea. I have the my favourite mug, yeah. Yeah, so in the office is the same like that. So they ended up having to like everybody had the same mug. And he couldn't, I don't know what. I, I remember that particular couple of scenes that's anyway. crazy but yeah one of the ones that I read on that um, was a woman who was slowly poisoning her husband and he went into hospital um, they didn't know obviously that he was being poisoned by his wife but she kept bringing food in from so anytime that you ever say hospital food is yuck just just eat it if you go in with gastro problems just eat it because your wife is more than likely poisoning you but the wife kept bringing in home cooked meals Mm -hmm. and he wasn't getting any better and he ended up dying 
And the only reason that she got caught is because she was stupid enough to do it again with her second or second or third husband. Or it was her second husband that she also killed. And then it was her third husband where she got caught. So she killed two people. Yeah, she. I think it was her first husband. It could have been her second. And they just never put two and two together. The, the, the lines never crossed. They never thought, oh, this is because she is bringing in home-cooked food. That she is lacing full of stuff. And so she got to her third husband and tried to kill her third husband. It was, I'm, I think it was either the second husband or the third husband that she got caught. I read so many stories today. I was just kind of, they were all starting to morph into one another. Mm. Um, but I just thought it was mad. Um, there is a true crime story that Mr. Bolland covered where a next door neighbor hated with a passion the neighbor so much. And I don't know if the husband did it to kind of stick up for his wife, but he found um, something that we naturally have in our bodies, but it's like three parts to a thousand or something mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. 10,000 or a hundred thousand. Yeah. And he laced cola bottles. Like, you know, the cola bottle yeah. you have with the cap that you, you open, you don't twist. It's like a, a metal cap. Oh, yeah. The but- old school ones. Yeah. Um, and just, Filled, broke into their house, filled up the coke uh, or laced it with the stuff, put it all back into the container again and then kind of put the put the coke somewhere that someone would find like two or three days later and go, oh, I, I didn't even... Like your word is originals that you bought last week yeah. and completely forgot about. That kind of thing. Well, that's because the shelf is above my eye level <laughs> and I'm a very sharp man. Yeah, and I put the shepherd away. I knew for like a whole week and I just didn't tell you. Um, but... Instead of just poisoning the wife, he ended up poisoning the whole family. Um, and who who are those really, really, really smart people that are like in the top, top percentile? Like they're not just smart. These people, Mensa, Mensa or oh, something. Oh yeah, it could be something. They there. had a chapter in the area that they lived in, and apparently he was in charge of running. There, they had this retreat or something, and he was in charge of running the murder mystery thing that they were doing themed that week. And the only reason that they knew it was him that did it was because the method of murder used was the same poison. And I'm like, what a way to cock your feathers and just show off because you know that that's a legitimate way that you can poison someone because you have been secretly poisoning your neighbours. Now, the dad, so wait the a two minute. or three the sons were fine. Did, the guy that did the poisoning, he was rec- recreated. He was Mensa. He was Mensa. And, and he, on the, one of their weekends away, he was in charge of... Murder mystery. Yeah. Um, oh, and dog. a girl who was a Mensa candidate, or she went in, she wasn't, she was an undercover a cover cop, Um. I think the wife was a psychiatrist or she had like a GP practice or something and yeah. they decided to move the next town over but they didn't want to sell their house and this girl, I think her name was Sharon, she was like, oh, let me move into your house and I'll rent it from you so that you don't have to sell and blah, blah, blah and then as soon as they pulled out of the garden, a truckload of coppers came up and obviously gained access to the place and yeah. found traces everywhere of this poison whatever it was the wife died it was such a sad story because she she died slowly and it was a case that so let me just draw a picture there's a man in the house here and he didn't like the woman over here didn't like her or her kids so he poisoned everybody in this house 
Yeah, well, the intention was only to poison the wife. Everybody else was just a happy casualty as so far as he was concerned. Did he kill everybody else? No, just, just the, the wife. wife. And the other ones were just really sick for ages. Yeah, the, his wife didn't get done. Only he was done because he was the one who perpetrated. He was he was the perpetrator. Um, was, she, was she a willing participant? Oh, no, no, she denied, denied, denied and divorced him straight away and... Like it's one thing to yell at your neighbour and to give out about yeah, yeah. you know their dog is always barking all night or the baby's always screaming but you don't know the neighbour's circumstances they could be just distressed about the fact yeah. that their dog won't stop barking and the kid won't stop screaming but you don't act on it no you, you that's just no you, yeah you, you end up on the beach somewhere nobody knows who you are <laughs> we finish up there on that note I know <laughs> Say words. Okay. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I will, of course, include the links in the description for the research I did. And if you have any questions on this or any other episode or socials or what's the story ghost on Instagram and what's the story ghost at gmail.com if you have any personal stories you would like to share. And those are all my words. Exit jingle. Exit jingle. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That was a James Bond reference because there, okay. there was a spy okay. reference in your story. You think that went totally over my head, but I loved Zoop. it. It was really, really enthusiastic. Good story. <laughs>